Welcome to Hollywood in Color, where I tell the stories of the stars usually left out of entertainment history, the people of color in front of and behind the camera who have been representing for over a century. I'm your host, Diana Martinez. When Hattie McDaniel won the Oscar, she thought that not only would the award lead to better and bigger roles for herself, but that other Black actors would find doors open for them that had previously been closed. But this optimism was also tempered with realism. She was still very cautious. Her agent asked her if he could negotiate a raise for her, but Hattie declined. She knew too well that other Black actresses who had done that had just found themselves out of work. They became too expensive for studios. Studios that thought actresses, especially Black actresses, should come cheap. Hattie said, Big salaries and little work don't interest me. I don't want more money. I want more work. But throughout the 1940s and into the 1950s, Hattie was only met with more obstacles and resistance. In this third and final episode of the season, Hattie finds it difficult to keep up as Hollywood and her community forge ahead to a new era of Black representation and politics. This is Hattie McDaniel, Showstopper. Even before she won the Oscar, David O. Selznick knew Hattie was special. He immediately signed her to an exclusive contract. After Gone with the Wind's premiere, Selznick set about capitalizing on the film's success. He bought the copyright to any radio and film production with the title Mammy. He claimed that her performance in Gone with the Wind was so unique that Hattie couldn't replicate any parts of her characterization in any other film or stage production. Essentially, Selznick now owned her persona. He had full control over her career. In the studio era, this was completely normal for all stars. If you've ever wondered how the studio era produced so many iconic stars, The answer is, essentially, through the almost complete decimation of their agency as individuals. But in Hattie's case, Selznick's possessiveness didn't even lead to anything. He was so controlling that he didn't find her jobs because he was scared she'd be too good in them. He sent out other actresses to audition in her place. He thought the development of her career would mean her moving on from Gone with the Wind and he needed her to keep promoting the film, to keep being Mammy. Hattie was incredibly frustrated and bored, so she proposed going on tour. It was common then that stars would do personal appearances with the film, not necessarily their own film, and perform a song or dance or comedy bit before the show. Hattie was anxious to get back to her theatrical roots, and she really wanted to write and perform her own material again. Selznick begrudgingly agreed. 
but she had to submit her script for approval, and she would be observed by one of Selznick's production managers. But Hattie knew her way around these restrictions. It was really important to Hattie that she play majority all-white venues. First of all, personal appearances were kind of a big deal, and only two Black actresses before her, Louise Beavers and Freddie Washington, had been sent out on this kind of tour. Hattie also knew the most prestigious venues were white venues, and she didn't want to be restricted to playing only African-American theaters. That was a form of segregation she wouldn't tolerate. But the biggest reason Hattie insisted on all-white venues is that she had written her act specifically with white audiences in mind. Her 10-minute set was a parody of Mammy, the character and the concept. Her performance was sarcastic and sexy and subversive, and the white producer sent by Selznick to watch her act didn't see anything wrong at all. Hattie's fake ear-to-ear smile and jolly dancing hid the caustic delivery and suggestiveness of her songs. But a reporter from the California Eagle, a Black newspaper, also watched the show. He claimed it had all the earmarks of a 10-carat wow and praised Hattie for her burlesque on the mammy. This act was Hattie's way of breaking her silence on Gone with the Wind's racial politics and speaking to her critics. Her performance told them that she not only heard their criticisms, but that she agreed. But her message may have come too late. Hattie's tour didn't do very well, especially in Black theaters. This was certainly a blow for her. In April 1940, two months after her Oscar win, she was on the cover of The Crisis, the magazine of the NAACP. But by May, the Lincoln Theater in Washington, D.C. lost money during her performance, and they wanted Selznick to reimburse them. The owner of the theater wrote, Perhaps it may be that Miss McDaniel, despite her color, is better suited to white theaters. In July, Hattie canceled the rest of her appearances and headed back to Los Angeles. When Hattie wasn't making money, Selznick wasn't making money. And yet, he still wasn't very motivated to get her good work. But in October 1940, it appeared as though Hattie had a way out. Warner Brothers really wanted her to play the part of the maid in their film called The Great Lie, starring Betty Davis. Selznick took the financially prudent route and let Warner Brothers buy out her contract for $9,640, about $173,000 today. Though she didn't get much more work under Warner Brothers, she was excited for one small, though significant, role. Hattie played Minerva Clay in the film titled In This Our Life, directed by John Huston. Based on the 1941 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, the film tells the story of two feuding sisters, Stanley, played by Betty Davis, and Roy, played by Olivia de Havilland. 
Though their story is about romance and betrayal, it intersects with the story of the Clays, Minerva, the sister's housekeeper, and her son, Perry, played by Ernest Anderson. Perry is a brilliant young man. He's going to college and he wants to be a lawyer. In the climax of the film, Stanley kills a little girl while driving. She flees the scene. When the police come to investigate, she lies and says she loaned Perry her car. Perry killed the young girl. The police take him into custody. Stanley refuses to admit it was her until finally, fleeing town, she dies in a car crash. Hattie was proud of the film and its direct confrontation with racial prejudice, but Warner Brothers pushed back the release of the film due to America's official entrance into World War II. When the film was finally released in May 1942, critics praised the film for its smart handling of racial inequality. The Pittsburgh Courier wrote, In this picture, a very grievous side of the life of almost every colored American is exposed in the role of Perry Clay. Another review exclaimed, For the first time in the history of the cinema, a Negro is depicted as a normal, intelligent, clean-living human being. Walter White of the NAACP called the film a magnificent achievement. World War II gave Walter White a renewed sense of urgency in his efforts to improve Hollywood's representation of African Americans. He said, I consider the matter of the treatment of the Negro in motion pictures of such importance that it takes rank over some other phases of the NAACP's work. And in the 1940s, Walter made significant inroads with Hollywood, or at least he was made to feel as though his message was getting through to Hollywood bigwigs. In 1942, Walter White met Wendell Wilkie, a lawyer and the 1940 Republican nominee for president. Though he lost to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Wendell remained involved in politics of the Hollywood kind. Wendell was sympathetic to Walter's cause and helped him gain access to studio heads and top actors. And though many producers were hesitant to really change anything, they were slightly more willing to listen to Walter now that America had entered the war. They knew film would play a big part in shaping the national perception of the war effort. Walter had also gotten the approval of Eleanor Roosevelt, who personally recommended him to speak with studio heads. The War Department had tasked Walter to make sure that studios were including images of African-American soldiers in newsreels in order to garner support from the Black audience. Some Hollywood executives even thought Walter and Wendell were sent to spy on the studios and report about the studios' loyalty to the war. Walter had a few unsuccessful meetings with executives, producers, and directors. But in 1942, Wendell was appointed to the board of 20th Century Fox. And now they could both make Hollywood listen. In a luncheon with many influential people, Walter made his case. 
he argued that the black soldier's morale was built through film. He said, The restriction of Negroes to roles with rolling eyes, chattering teeth, always scared of ghosts, or to portrayals of none-too-bright servants, perpetuates a stereotype which is doing the Negro infinite harm. And for the first time, he got a pledge from filmmakers that they would do better. At the annual NAACP convention, Walter recapped his meeting with filmmakers for the entire contingency, but not everyone was happy. Actors had been completely excluded from any negotiations with the studios, and many actors, including Hattie, resented Walter's one-man crusade for so-called better representation. To them, Walter didn't know anything about the struggle of Black actors, and he didn't realize how his efforts could in fact have the opposite effect— create less jobs for Black actors in order for studios to avoid the hassle of creating better roles. Some actors thought Walter didn't realize that for them, working in Hollywood was work, and he was playing with their livelihoods. When Hattie was asked about her exclusion from Walter's plans, she responded, I have no quarrel with the NAACP or colored fans who object to the role some of us play, but I naturally resent being completely ignored at the convention after I have struggled for 11 years to open up opportunities for our group in the industry and have tried to reflect credit upon my race in exemplary conduct both on and off the screen." You can imagine my chagrin when the only person called to the platform was a young woman from New York who had just arrived in Hollywood and had not yet made her first picture. This put not only myself, but other established artists in an embarrassing light with our studios. At the convention, Walter was joined by an actress and singer from New York who he liked to think of as his protege. Her name was Lena Horn. Lena was a thin, light-skinned woman who ran in pretty elite circles by the time she moved to Hollywood. She was politically progressive in just the way Walter approved of. And Walter was convinced Lena represented the new, modern Black woman. Hattie became friends with Lena, giving her advice and helping her get into the Screen Actors Guild, But as Hattie's career declined and Lena's rose, Hattie became increasingly frustrated with what she saw as the hypocrisy of Hollywood and the NAACP. On April 23, 1944, the Committee for Unity in Motion Pictures held a ceremony honoring actors who had worked toward interracial unity in film. Horn was set to receive the award for Outstanding Colored Actress of the Year, and Hattie would deliver the keynote address to a crowd of 3,000 Black and white attendees, many of them actors, filmmakers, and producers. In a 30-minute speech, Hattie told the history of Black entertainers in the industry. She defended her choices and the choices of other actors to take certain roles. She said, 
we are ever on the alert to keep our roles free from objectionable material. Yet as artists, we reserve the right to accept the parts that we can portray with sincere artistry. She gave a tribute to the Black community and the African-American soldiers fighting in the war. And then she praised Lena Horne, who had appeared in hit musicals and had quickly become a star. Lena was, in Hattie's words, a representative of the new type of Negro womanhood. Except she didn't say Negro. The crowd, stunned, was silent. Hattie, who had supposedly refused to say the N-word on the set of Gone with the Wind, had just used the word to describe her colleague. Hattie quickly corrected herself. I said Negro womanhood. But it was too late. The next day, journalist Robert J. Smith, a reporter for the Los Angeles Sentinel, ran a piece with the headline, A Slip of the Lip May Sink a Ship. The Baltimore Afro-American ran an article with the headline, Miss McDaniel Accused of Using Offensive Epithet. Hattie furiously backtracked. She said that it was a regrettable error that was falsely exaggerated, that the audience actually laughed instead of staying silent, that the writers were purposefully trying to sow seeds of discord and malicious antagonism. She even went as far as saying that Smith himself was thinking that word, and she, through telepathy, picked up on it and said it out loud by mistake. Hattie clearly knew that she had fucked up, and she scrambled to take control of the story. But Hattie also maybe used the word as shorthand for something she had tried to articulate over and over again, but was never heard by her critics. In Hattie's view, Black actors always played stereotypes. Their casting was always in the service of a white story from a white point of view. Even Lena, who was supposedly a progressive figure, was sexualized and fetishized on screen. Lena wasn't getting big dramatic roles either. She played singers and dancers. She may have been thinner, lighter skinned, more conventionally beautiful than Hattie, but to white audiences, she was dispensable. And being on Walter White's arm wasn't going to change that. All of them were treated like that epithet. Hattie continued to go head-to-head with the NAACP. In 1947, Hattie was cast in Beulah, a radio show. The audio comedy centered on Beulah Brown, a maid to a family called the Hendersons. They were, of course, a white, idyllic family. When Hattie played Beulah, the show was more popular than ever, reaching 10 million listeners a night and consistently being in the top 20 radio shows nationally. The show was groundbreaking in its structure. It was told from Beulah's point of view. 
and Hattie had tried her hardest to get rid of hokey accents and silly storylines. She was in creative control, and the show was a hit. In October of 1950, Beulah was adapted into a TV sitcom, the first major American television sitcom to star a Black actor. But at first, Hattie wasn't cast as television's Beulah. Instead, the network chose Ethel Waters, another prominent Black actress. But when Waters became too busy, Hattie replaced her. Reviews of the show were mixed. Gertrude Gibson from the Los Angeles Sentinel wrote, Although we have nothing against Waters or nothing for her either, we sincerely think Hattie is the one and only Beulah. The New York Times, however, wrote that the show was regrettably stereotyped in concept and that there were the calculated mistakes in grammar most commonly identified with minstrel shows. This last review resonated with Walter White. In 1951, the NAACP condemned Beulah for its portrayal of African Americans. The official statement from the NAACP's convention argued that shows like Beulah depicted the Negro and other minority groups in stereotyped and derogatory manner, and that they definitely tended to strengthen the conclusion among the uninformed or prejudiced peoples that Negroes and other minorities are inferior, lazy, dumb, and dishonest. And the false impression created by programs and shows over the radio and television like Beulah seriously hamper the development of the work of the NAACP and other groups and associations that want to promote the intelligent appraisal of all human beings as individuals. And the final line read, Therefore, be it resolved that the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People condemns the practice, manufacturers, distributors, persons, or firms sponsoring or promoting radio and television programs and shows which portray stereotypical characterizations of Negroes. Walter White had singled out Hattie for far too long, and she was very upset by this public condemnation. But Hattie's ongoing fight with the NAACP ended in August 1951, when Hattie had a stroke and left the show. The doctors found that she also had diabetes and a heart condition. A few months later, she was diagnosed with cancer. On October 24, 1952, Hattie went into a coma. Two days later, she died. On October 27, CBS Radio announced her death, stating, The sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withhold their shining. It is with deep regret that we announce the passing of Hattie McDaniel. 
our beloved Beulah. In an article about black stardom, scholar Arthur Knight writes, a white performer could become a Hollywood star without ever bringing a single black patron into a theater. In contrast, a black performer could never hope to be a Hollywood star without appealing to a vast, white-dominated mass audience. Knight goes on. While for Hollywood and its white audience, there were no black equivalents to Garbo or Gable or Garland, African-Americans never lacked stars, but were defined from within a different set of values and constraints. And the fact that Hollywood cannot envision roles outside a limited scope of stereotypes does not cancel out the fact that there are exceptional actors who do incredible things with the roles they choose. Renowned film historian Donald Bogle goes one step further by stating that the essence of Black film history is not found in the stereotyped role but in what certain talented actors have done with the stereotype. Six black women have won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, and only one woman, Halle Berry, has won for Best Actress. And they have won for playing maids, single moms, con artists, and singers, roles that less talented actresses could have very well played as a stereotype. I know every year someone will say very cynically that the Oscars don't matter, that the best movies or actors don't even win. It's all Hollywood politics. But what this kind of cynical thinking underestimates is the symbolic value awards have. How an award might make someone somewhere feel seen and feel hope. Like their own history and heritage is valuable. And the Oscar goes to Viola Davis. People ask me all the time, what kind of stories do you want to tell Viola? And I say, exhume those bodies. Exhume those stories. The stories of the people who dreamed big and never saw those dreams to fruition. People who fell in love and lost. And the Oscar goes to Lupita Nyong'o. Yes! Thank you to the Academy for this incredible recognition. It doesn't escape me for one moment that so much joy in my life is thanks to so much pain in someone else's. It goes to Octavia Spencer. And the winner is Monique. Impressions based on the novel Push by Sapphire. 
I want to thank Miss Hattie McDaniel for enduring all that she had to so that I would not have to. And the Oscar goes to Jennifer Hudson. I have to just take this moment in. Cannot believe this. Look what God can do. And the Oscar goes to Halle Berry. This moment, so much bigger than me. This moment is for Dorothy Dandridge, Lena Horne, Diane Carroll. It's for the women that stand beside me, Jada Pinkett, Angela Bassett, Vivica Fox, and it's for every nameless, faceless woman of color that now has a chance because this door tonight has been opened. And the Oscar goes to Whoopi Goldberg. Ever since I was a little kid, I've wanted this. That I present the Academy Award for the best performance of an actress in supporting role during 1939, the Hattie This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you and God bless you. This episode of Hollywood in Color has been produced, edited, and narrated by me, Diana Martinez. All artwork for the show was designed by Shelby Mooring. If you like the show, please leave a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. If you have a little more time, a review would be awesome. For those of you who have already rated, reviewed, and sent messages through the website or social media, I thank you so, so much. I love hearing from you. And with that said, Hollywood in Color will be back in September with a new season on five of the most iconic stars in history. I can't wait to tell you their stories.